The interesting tweets to talk about for me are probably the first one. The first ever tweet was, um, we can neither confirm nor deny this is our first tweet. And people went crazy for it. People loved it. They were like, oh, that's so funny because it plays upon the, the Glomar response, which is that we can either confirm or deny what we're up to. Um, and it kind of updates it for the, the social media era. Um, and I think that from the outset, the CIA kind of had this smart, funny identity on their Twitter page. And we see that kind of throughout the rest of the stuff that they tweet about. So I guess the, the tweet that the paper takes its title from, no, we don't know where Tupac is. That's, again, this kind of funny, hey, like you think we know everything and that we surveil everything and that we know all this stuff about what's happening in the world. But yeah, we, we don't actually know where Tupac is. For seven years, the CIA has been actively posting on Twitter. Early on, this caught the attention of postdoc researcher Rhys Crilly, who started collecting the tweets. Teaming up with his colleague Louise Pierce, they dug down the Twitter history of the CIA and, working during the pandemic last year, they did a discourse analysis of the tweets. Reading the posts by the CIA on Twitter makes one thing clear from the start. They are presenting a whole new side to this American governmental institution that we usually think of as a mysterious, omnipresent spy. In your Twitter feed, they are a light-hearted, funny persona. Traditionally, as Rhys and Louise will explain in this episode, studies of intelligence agencies have usually been fairly uncritical. They will make a case for how important it is to look at the actors holding power and how they present themselves to us. They make a point in how the humorous CIA is a diversion of the more controversial side of the agency. Third time's a charm, they say. This is the third episode ever, but we're just getting started. I'm Rasmus, and this is Keywords, a podcast about research that's out there but doesn't get enough attention. Welcome! Hello, Louise, and hello, Rhys, from the UK and from Scotland. Uh, welcome! Hey, how you doing? Thank you, it's great to be here. Great to have you. And um, today uh, we're going to talk about central intelligence on Twitter and uh, why on earth they are on social media. How did you find each other and, and this topic? Uh, we met at a conference at the University of Warwick uh, when we were both PhD students, didn't we? And Louise, Louise was, was one of the people there that I met and got on with and uh, we just kind of kept in touch. Um, 
a few years later, I, I collected this data about the CIA's tweets and um, didn't really do anything with it, just kind of sat, sat on it, just thought it was interesting, um, mm-hmm. never had the time to work on it. And then Louise was publishing stuff about the CIA and Homeland. And uh, I kind of said, hey, do you want to work together and, and do something with all this data? And, and then, then we did. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, you did a critical approach to the CIA on Twitter. What does that mean? So yeah, I think the the specific critical approach that we um, kind of draw upon and advocate for in our study is one that is uh, grounded upon feminist and post-structural approaches um, and theories. So specifically, we're looking at uh, discourse. So I think we call it a discursive mm-hmm. approach to intelligence studies uh, in our paper. And we're interested in how uh, language and visual representations are used to represent uh, what happens in the world. Um, So kind of the key thing that this approach involves is recognizing that um, there's stuff that exists in the world like the CIA and like the things that they get up to, the practices that they do um, and so on. Uh, But what, how we come to know them is through representations, is through how these things are talked about and how they're represented in visual media, in pop culture, in music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we see the the kind of the gap between mm-hmm. intelligence agencies and how they're represented as the location of politics. So we're not trying to say like our study of the CIA is like the definitive study of mm-hmm. what the CIA, how the CIA represents itself on Twitter. What we're looking at is this is the representation that the CIA puts out on Twitter. So what does that tell us about the CIA's identity and and what it's trying to achieve and what impact uh, it might be having on um, society, basically? Does that make sense? (laughs) Uh, I don't know if Louise probably has uh, something better to say (laughs) than that. Yeah, it's about not interrogating kind of the accuracy of what they're saying on Twitter. It's about um, interest in the outcome of what they're saying on Twitter, right? So, what is that doing? What does that do to what we who we think the CIA are? What does that do to uh, people's interactions when they can, you know, retweet them, when they can at them, when they're reading memes? Like, how is that? What is that mm-hmm. doing to our relationship to security and our understanding of intelligence? And then, fundamentally, what intelligence should or could do, right? And, and that's all framed in that space. So. Did you go into this study with the notions of that what CIA is doing on social media is very uh, strategic? Um, yeah, it's hard to really know um, the intentions of, of anyone in in the world, right? Um, so we've read, you know, there's we, when we were writing the study, we read various things, um, interviews with social media managers and people that were involved in setting up the CIA's Twitter and uh, looked at what they said. Um, But I think with a discourse analysis, you're trying to go beyond someone's intentions um, to look at the actual outcomes uh, of what they do. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess we're like, we don't really know, we're we're yet to do any interviews or anything with the people that make this stuff. Um, So we can't really talk about the what's gone on in in the creation of it. So we don't know the strategic Mm -hmm. process that or the you know the whatever goes on uh, in Langley or whatever we don't understand you know we don't know if the how the chain of command works how it kind of uh, how the tweets get written how they get made what the kind of the publishing 
um, strategy might be, whether they, they specifically go out of the way to say, oh, today we're going to talk about Tupac uh, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think there, there will be some, there will be a fair bit of thought put into it. Um, you write in your study how diametrically different the personality of CIA is on Twitter compared to what it's known for. What do you mean by this? I think there's a couple of things going on kind of historically. So the first is the thing that really inspired the whole study in a lot of ways was just this total paradox about the fact that the CIA on Twitter is really funny, really lighthearted. Um, the kind of tweets that you're reading are just so jarringly not what you expect to read from the CIA Twitter account that it starts to, and then we start to ask questions about like what this is, what this does, what, why this matters. Traditional politics and their legitimation historically has kind of in some ways relied on the idea that they do this serious business of government, that it's um, secret, that it needs to be in case of national security. Um, their kind of whole, their branding, if you want to call it that, is that of a serious arm of government um, that's wielding violence and that's doing it for kind of very important reasons. Mm. Um, and then you juxtapose that with this these these tweets about cats and these memes and things and that's so unusual but i think i would caveat that with the fact that we're also kind of aware of the fact that the cia have always been involved in popular culture and the manipulation of its popular cultural image so on one hand it seems really odd in one reading it's really odd that they're doing these jokes and they're here on twitter um, being funny and making pop culture references because it seems to be a very different version of the brand that they put out but at the same time, they've always been very obsessed with the way that they're represented in popular cultural spaces and have directly intervened in that representation. Mm -hmm. So there's a fact that they've always known that it matters what people think of them and that where mm -hmm. people get an idea of what the CIA is, is actually through popular culture more than it is ever through the reading of kind of traditional policy documents or, um, you know, kind of their own outputs. Do, do you have like some examples of these tweets that they that they have published? What's uh, um, something distinct about this? Obviously, the ones where they talk about hashtag CIA cats, and they have this photo of a cat at a keyboard uh, with the the CIA's Twitter page on the screen behind it. Um, I think that was one of a thread where they were kind of talking about interesting things that they tweet they they were gonna tweet about because it was their first uh, Twitter anniversary. So, I think that's that's one that got. Uh, a lot of responses as well this kind of cat photo on the internet right like it's going to go viral um it's got the cia it's got mm -hmm. a cute cat um and it, it's kind of funny so so yeah they're they're the interesting ones for me because they they kind of really cut to the uh, heart of i think what we're right. interested in is which is about this kind of humorous identity identity that they now seem to be constructing on on their social media pages i um i remember the no we don't know where you'll we don't know your password is another one they think that were popular um, and I think that one's particularly interesting because it's a nod to the idea that they're known for surveilling their own citizens but it's I think I've seen the paper or we say in the paper that it's about like what is this humour doing right it's really funny but what are we like how many levels of self-referential humour are we laughing at no we don't know your password and no we don't know where Tupac is these kind of tweets are I think they're a really effective or, or smart way of dealing with all the fallout of the WikiLeaks and the Snowden leaks um, that kind of revealed that all these intelligence agencies were mm. doing uh, all these nefarious things and looking at the 
everything that we were all posting online, even you know citizens of, of America and uh, wherever else. Um, so how they've kind of dealt with that is rather than just choosing to ignore it, they're they're actively kind of it's a wink and a nod to it to be like, mm. oh yeah, like we do this surveillance stuff, but you know we're not doing it to you and and your friends mm. and. Um, mm. You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, don't worry about it. It's this kind of, yeah, self-referential, jokey uh, mm-hmm. style that that seems to be quite popular with with their audience on on Twitter. You also you write about like this um, a concern that there is about intelligence agencies using social media. Uh, what do you mean by this concern? get a critique that's like this is a waste of government money going you should be doing the serious business of tracking real criminals people who are going to damage the national interest and then the other side of that is you get people who are critical of the cia and their practices so they're they use this as an opportunity to make that criticism mm-hmm. so there's two kind of concerns that we've seen in from kind of two ends of concerns from the audience but i think in the paper we might be referring kind of more to like an academic or kind of wider concern um, and Misa might look to me to talk about that. Yeah, so I think alongside those concerns we see in the audience, the what's kind of surprising mm-hmm. for me is how the the academic concern with intelligence agencies using social media to date has generally yeah. been quite uncritical, and it's been a concern with almost understanding how intelligence agencies can use social media better, um, which kind of goes back to that problem solving slash critical theory distinction that we talked about um, earlier. So that kind of concern has almost been concerning for me because mm-hmm. it's not really interested in the effects um, yeah. that this CIA use of Twitter might be having. It's kind of just mm-hmm. studying it and concerned with understanding, okay, like how can the CIA get more interactions, for example? Um, so that seems like a rather limited research concern to me and, and Louise, I think. So that's what we tried to do with this paper is to be like, look, there's there's more going on here and that we shouldn't just be studying how s- intelligence agencies use social media in order to improve their reach and engagement. We should be doing it to, to understand how it's constructing certain identities, how it's representing certain actions mm-hmm. in certain ways, how it's trying to claim legitimacy for certain actions and things that they do in different places and how it might be also silencing Mm -hmm. other activities um, that they still do um, or that they have been involved in relatively recently such as torture extraordinary rendition all these things that um, you know we should be concerned about as as citizens of, of these countries yeah and you also write that reflecting on your own study that it might seem banal or trivial to look at these tweets, but that there actually is then uh, a deeper meaning into having uh, this kind of analysis of the discourse that they're creating. I think it's a good thing nowadays um, in international relations. Like you don't like people understand why it's legitimate to be researching popular culture, um, and I think that's a relatively recent development. I think there were lots of people that were uh, breaking new ground with looking at popular culture, uh, lots of feminist researchers doing this, um, the late 80s, the 90s, um, early noughties. And, and now, thanks to the work that lots of people have done before us, it's now 
um, a legitimate source of inquiry, as Louise said, for for PhD students and for early career scholars like ourselves to mm. to say, actually, I want to look at what the CIA is tweeting about, and people will under people might understand why that's important. Whereas I think probably about a decade ago, if you were to be like, oh, I want to look at popular culture, people would be like, well, no, that's not important. You should be looking at, um, you know, trade negotiations. You should be looking at like war and conflict and uh, mm. what political leaders say about these things. Mm. Um, whereas now it's, um, you know, there's still quite a way to go, I think, before this kind of research is is accepted by, um, I think, specifically like North American elite institutions. But here in the UK, there's a lot of scholars that are now looking at popular culture um, because this is a site where we mm. engage with the world and where we learn about things like the CIA. Most people mm. don't learn about the world through reading policy briefs they learn about it through watching marvel films or um scrolling on their phone and following the, the, the cia on twitter for example um, in the paper we're kind of responding to whilst that kind of in a critical security space being more accepted as a method and a, and a place of interrogation in intelligence studies that's much less accepted as a kind of area of importance research and understanding so it's it's really we're kind of really specifically trying to say that it's it's almost the fact that it seems banal and trivial that makes it so dear listener science is so fascinating i decided to do a bonus segment with riz and louise Right next to this episode in your podcast player, you can find the episode we recorded, where you can hear the researchers explain critical intelligence studies and why they chose to do a discourse analysis. You could also check out an earlier bonus episode explaining the basics of qualitative research. Uh, Then to the findings. We can start with the audience, like, are they buying what CIA is offering them on, on Twitter? It's a mixed bag. It's like, um, I, some people, some people love it. Um, lots of journalists <laughs> yeah. particularly seem to love it and wrote quite positive pieces about, oh, look, the CIA just joined Twitter with the best first tweet ever. And again, lots of people did kind of reply saying ha great this has really made my day this is funny uh, i'm now following you guys so yeah on the one hand you do see that but then you do also see lots of critical stuff that can be why are you on twitter shouldn't you be catching the bad guys fighting isis and then other critical stuff which is like oh this is kind of cringe like look at you trying to be down with the kids people responding with the uh the gif of uh, Steve Buscemi with the skateboard and the music band t-shirt, kind of the, how do you do fellow kids? It's that kind of uh, response that some people kind of Mm. reply and say, Hey, I can see what you're doing here. You're trying to be cool. You're not actually cool. You're a bunch of spooks uh, who work for the state. So yeah, we do see these mixed responses in the audience. And perhaps that's one limitation of, of our method Mm. is we're not like, we can't, we, we haven't, and I, we probably won't quantitatively analyze the responses. If you were a computer scientist and if you kind of scraped all the replies to the CIA and you did some kind of sentiment analysis, you could probably look at, you know, give these percentages of 75% of people respond positively positively to the CIA suites. Um, you could do that type of thing, perhaps, but 
that's not what we're trying to do so so yeah we're interested in looking at i guess the broader different discourses of audience response rather than uh quantitatively Mm -hmm. putting them in in like numerical terms of percentages and whatnot exactly yeah the issue as well is, is the nothing, what's contained in the nothingness, in the no replies, right? Because yeah. if you're not replying, is it, if, you know, if you're not, if you, there's, there's so much nothingness in, in, in the engagement with the AI, right? So it might be that you follow them and you, but you've never replied. And is that because you're following them on the off chance? They've got one tweet that's mm. about the particular security issue that, that pertains to you and you're ignoring the rest, or it could be that you um, completely buy all of it and you love it and you follow them and they do, but there's never been a response. Or mm. it could be, you know, that you so you follow them from a place of completely mm. critical perspective. So there's like a lot of there's a lot of silence um, that would be missing if you were to just look at the kind of content of the way that it's responded with. And um, so I think there's another kind of extension. You could the sentiment analysis could be fascinating. And then I think mm. there's also uh, I always like to just speak to people, but there's also kind of the interaction between the on, online and offline world as well. If you wanted to really get to kind of how far that this is kind of everyone's buying what they're selling as well yeah and i i think the the important thing to kind of emphasize here is that um it's not a zero-sum game doing research of this kind of stuff like we've done a discourse analysis of audience responses um but that's not to say that it wouldn't be interesting and worthwhile to do these other types of research whether that's sentiment analysis whether that's a, a analysis of who follows the cia on twitter um mm. in terms of like the demographics or whatever or whether that's through focus groups and interviews with people that mm. follow them um or whether that's interviews yeah. with people that don't follow them and you show them the stuff and see what they think um all of this stuff is valuable um mm. Mm. and it would just like uh, um like be cumulative of the, of yeah. the big picture of of, yeah. uh, of how they are presenting themselves uh, on social media but then after uh, doing this discourse analysis or the result is the analysis uh, with the discursive approach, what can you then tell us about uh, what the CIA, what are they, they going after with this uh, identity construction on Twitter? It's about kind of presenting themselves as kind of this approachable, fundamentally successful, lighthearted, self-aware, group mm. of generally nice people who are out doing their best is the is the mm. kind of overall impression that, you, that, that this Twitter account gives, and that in its that that identity that's presented, we think yeah. is doing really is doing interesting things about legitimacy, and and who the CIA is thought to be by a, a public the public. Yeah, that's I think that's spot on. It's about giving a human face to a shady organization, um, right? For want of a better word, it's. The CIA tweeting about cats and uh, rappers um, and all these fun things and making cracking jokes. You know, it's this human entity rather than this state organization that has been involved in human rights abuses throughout the world. And you also point out that they are obviously not only tweeting for the American audience, but also for a global audience. Uh, what should we the people who are not living in the US, uh, what should we make out of our relationship with the CIA then? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just interesting to to know how the CIA represents itself as this, I guess, beacon of American democracy and, and freedom and all these kind of 
I guess, cliches that you think of when you think about America. It's it's how it's playing upon these and represents itself to be, um, as Louise talked about earlier, this sort of cool institution to work for. It's um, It cares about gender and race and it doesn't discriminate in terms of sexuality. And it, it presents this kind of positive view of both the CIA as an institution, but America more broadly. And in doing that and in focusing on the good things, it silences the bad things. And earlier we were talking about like that we, we can't know the strategics they have behind their presence on social media, but looking back and reflecting on like what they have actually been doing since then entering Twitter in 2014, you can see some kind of a picture emerging. For instance, CIA had a, recently a, a rebranding. Um, they have a new logo. Uh, they, are, they are like uh, profiling themselves to a younger audience. They want them to come and work for them. So what, what's, what are your thoughts then having this, that you can see what the CIA now has been doing recently and then what they started in 2014? Uh, what's your reflection on that? Um, it's almost this case of woke washing, isn't it? Where it's like, I guess it's good that the CIA is, you know, um, has a diverse workforce, but it's also overshadowing some of the, the real harms that the CIA has, has been involved in, um, especially with, um, you know, women and, and people of colour in other parts of the world, right? Um, and then, yeah, the rebranding in terms of the new logo. Um, I think it was one of my friends and colleagues at Glasgow who uh, pointed out this the new CIA logo looks just like uh, kind of a techno night logo. And it's, again, a really interesting example, I think, of the CIA trying to be uh, down with the kids and trying to engage a new online audience um, and moving beyond that image of, you know, Jack Bauer being this kind of strong figure fighting terrorists with a gun in hand um, and it's much more subtle much more uh, you know it's smarter it's cooler it's edgy um, so yeah perhaps that might be driven by uh, recruitment concerns um, and about the, the skill sets that are needed in intelligence agencies nowadays um, in terms of like computational analysis um, and that kind of thing I think they'd like if anything, we've, they've really doubled down on a lot of this identity stuff that we've talked about. So if, if the face of the CIA is now like a young, friendly-looking Black American woman, that's really different from the suited white army image that we have from other spaces the, um, and all the kind of traditional spy. And I think through other stuff that I've looked at, other popular cultural spaces that I've looked at, I think there's something really interesting mm. being done when you gender institutions in that particular way. Um, and other feminists have written mm. about that kind of in relation mm. to, um, in, in, I've forgotten the character's name in Zero Dark Thirty and Carrie Matson in, in, in Homeland, right? There's, what, there's more going on in that doubling down of kind of ideas of diversity than just mm. making an appealing place for women to work. As you have been very deeply involved now with uh, these old institutions being online, wanting to be where all the others are on social media today. What, what thoughts do you have on this like 
representation and presentation of them online why, why do they feel that they have a need to be there so previous research has kind of said there's a move in the u.s government but um, there has like open government right so there's been a call for um different branches of government to have online accounts and to do social media and it's been kind of a drive that's pushed a lot of um institutions online mm. that maybe wouldn't have gone otherwise but i think just kind of assuming that that's where it stops and starts is perhaps too shallow an analysis mm. because mm-hmm. and that's why i talked earlier a bit about this trajectory of their interactions with popular culture that's going to kind of span over time and there's been other scholars who've done really interesting kind of analysis of that interaction with popular culture i i'm kind of both surprised and puzzled by it and then also it's kind of achingly familiar to see that the way that these institutions kind of garner legitimacy and matter means that they have to constantly be in this this strange relationship with their kind of public slash consumer if you're going to use kind of really like market-driven language but like they have they these institutions though this is hidden their legitimacy their lifeblood rests on having the support a popular understanding that they're an institution that that we should support that we should fund that should exist and that matters kind of in the case of the CIA um, and it matters in the case of lots of other kind of branches of security and kind of world politics that there's there's always this kind of often undervalued relationship between the legitimacy and the fact that they can go out and do what they do um, and an image of who they are and this kind of representative practices where right? those those things are absolutely vital um, and I it's where so much of my attention like scholarly attention is directed. No I think that, I think that's spot on as well um, and yeah it's it's about those things it's about yeah this guise of being transparent and I, I, I'm not particularly convinced that's the main reason mm. uh, I think other reasons such as it being low, a low cost and effective way of getting a message out to a lot of people mm. is is really important. And the fact that, as Louis said, it's about justifying what they do and their existence. And given that they're, you know, a government department and that mm. they, they're reliant on taxpayer funding, you know, mm. to to justify their, their budgets, basically, it you know, getting the support of people online is an easy way of doing that and saying, hey, look, here's what we're up to. Here's how we're spending your money. Here's, you know, all these these kind of reasons. I think lots of the turn to intelligence agencies and, and other state actors like militaries using social media is because they kind of saw how effective other non-state actors and their adversaries were at using these technologies to, to gain support. Um, mm. So, for example, you know, the likes of Al-Qaeda, but, um, you know, more recently ISIS were renowned for having effective social media campaigns and having this really slick social media side to them. Mm. Whereas, you know, militaries didn't have this kind of thing and they were trying to play catch up and and just putting whatever they could on on their Twitter feeds and on their YouTube and Facebook channels and, and whatnot. So the CIA is kind of, I guess, one of these other state actors that realized other people like Julian Assange, like WikiLeaks, were shaping mm. the, the global narrative about intelligence agencies. Mm. And unless the CIA kind of joined Twitter, um, then they didn't have their their voice and their narratives out there um, in the same way that these, these other different actors did. 
they're just everywhere they want to be everywhere yeah um, <laughs> i think there's there's really the one of the interesting things that um i'll just add is that you know people tend to have people that are politically active might have knowledge of the the military industrial uh complex and how like militaries and big business like work with each other to build up mm. arms races and make weapons and get these massive budgets um but this has kind of been updated for the digital age and you have scholars like James Dederian talking about the media industrial uh military industrial media entertainment network which is a bit bit wordier and a bit not quite as catchy perhaps but it kind of does highlight how these this traditional relationship of the military working with arms industries now involves entertainment producers uh such as uh you know the marvel films uh where uh if uh a film wants to have military equipment in it then they can go to the pentagon or they can go to the cia um and say hey mm -hmm. can we have an aircraft carrier or can we have like some planes or helicopters uh in this shot and the pentagon or the cia will go yeah sure but give us your script we want to have a look at how we're represented in it and they'll have input mm. and that i think uh recent freedom of information uh, research in in the US revealed that the CIA have been involved in like hundreds of TV shows and films uh, in this kind of way. So, mm. Mm. so yeah, it's about looking at this kind of, you know, the state and these intelligence agencies take their representation really seriously, and they take their involvement in popular culture really seriously. Um, and that's what we think scholars should do as well. In the bonus episode, Riz and Luis talk more in-depth about the methods of analyzing the CIA on Twitter. This can be interesting if you're doing discourse analysis yourself. There are millions of studies out there, so I won't be running out on material anytime soon. But let me know if you have a scientific study on your mind that you have stumbled upon. Or perhaps you have done research. Please DM me on Twitter at Rasmus Kulonen, or send me email to rasmus.kulonen at helsinki.fi. You've been listening to Keywords. Thank you for listening.